0: Today's scripture reading is from Romans 16, verses 17 through 23. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you.
1: Thank you, Liza. And, church, if you have not yet already, please open to Romans chapter 16, verse 17 through 23. That'll be our primary text today. My name Jason. I serve as one of the elders uh, here at Church in the Square. And, uh, You're not getting it wrong, we're getting close. We're getting close (laughs) to uh, the final movement of Paul's letter to Rome that we've been searching uh, through for the past four years. So, uh, a lot of eagerness, a lot of sadness, I'm not going to lie to you. We're getting getting close. Uh, Next week we'll conclude this series before we jump into our Advent uh, time and considering our preparation for the arrival of Christ. Um, Satan is a shadowy and even fragmented figure throughout the story of our faith, we never really get a full picture of him. There's not really one place we go to to get our full understanding of Satan's nature, his character, his story, his origin, if you will, in any one place. The evil one is difficult to nail. You see in the garden, in the very beginning of the story, he's a serpent. In Isaiah, in one of the prophetic uh, books of the Bible, he's Lucifer, taken from the Hebrew word Hallel, which means day star. And in the Gospels, he's Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Both Mark, rather Mark, Luke, and Matthew all refer to him as such. And in Paul's writings, he's Belel, which is the prince of the power of the air. And through the century, these vignettes. These little pictures of Satan have been sort of pieced together to create a solitary figure which has animated much of the Christian imagination in every generation of the church. In fact, 17th century preacher, a man named Jonathan Edwards, observed that it is a policy of the devil to persuade us that there is no devil. So even though we're given all of these vignettes, we easily disregard them and look past them. In fact, there's another name for him, the devil. Edwards is right. Think about it. Few of us think about Satan today. In fact, even just bringing him up here is just like, really? This is where we're going? This is, I didn't know this was that kind of church. I didn't know we were were this kind of people, right? As if we do, and if we do, if we do bring him up, it's usually in these two extremes, right? One is a caricature, a cartoon. He's got a pitchfork zero spiritual influence. He's got horns, right? It's almost comical how he's portrayed in sort of wider social expressions. But another way that we do this is that we or view him, if we think about him at all, is that he is an evil force on par with God. So we go to either extreme. He's either an impotent cartoon or he is the God, just sort of like the yin and yang. He's the opposite and the evil power that is on par with God. In other words, we either dismiss him or we fear him. We either dismiss him or we fear him, and today, by God's grace, we're going to learn from Romans chapter 16 to do neither of those things. As Paul is winding down this great letter, he's about to drop a few last warnings and a couple more greetings. I couldn't believe after 25 people he mentions he has a few more that he's got to talk about too, and what he's going to tell us is a couple of things. He's going to tell us to watch out, and he's going to tell us to be wise to watch out and be wise. Paul is aware that the powers and influences are not only pressing in within the Christian community in his first readers, but also in the larger society. And so he wants his readers to be careful not to give way to these impulses, but rather to stand firm in what he's been teaching them. In in other words, he's like, I've just dropped all of this knowledge on you and now be careful to not forget it because you will, you will forget this. You will forget what I've told you. Why? Because there's pressure around you. There's pressure within the church. There's pressure outside of the church. There's pressure to dismiss him, the evil one that is, and there's pressure to fear him. Here's the crux of our passage today. This is why we know that the weight, if you will, of the passage is found in this singular line when Paul says what? The God of peace will soon crush Satan. I love that line. That's so dope. Is that not the greatest way to end 16 chapters of writing to the local church? But we have to understand why. Why is that so hopeful? That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how we neither dismiss Satan nor fear him. I want to talk about how we live with hope in that peace, that peace of God, or what the Jewish people call shalom, shalom, wholeness, completeness, perfection, and how that will soon overwhelm Satan, sin, and death. Here's how we'll organize our time. We're going to talk about Satan's story, and we're going to talk about Satan's plan, and then we'll talk about Satan's demise. So Satan's story, Satan's plan, and Satan's demise. To that end, I want to be available to God's Spirit. So let's pray, ask for his help, and then get to work. Father, speak and help us to listen. The evil one does not like when we name him, does not like when we draw attention to him because he can't sneak around in the shadows. And so give us courage to do that today. Give me courage to do that today. Not flippantly, not casually, yet without fear. Give us wisdom. Give us hope. We pray for justice. We pray for peace. And we pray above all things that Jesus is honored in our lives, in our hearts, in our families, in our groups, in our church, and in this city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as as we've said, Satan's story is about pieced together. There isn't one place that we go to get a full picture of him, and, and we piece him together through what's called systematic theology. Systematic theology is a process of viewing Scripture as a whole, formulating a biblical thought or perspective based on many passages rather than one. You see, many important ideas aren't Clear unless we take a step back and consider the whole. Particularly, we see this in Satan. He's one such example. We're introduced to Satan back in Ephesians, or rather, Genesis chapter 3. Meet me there at the very beginning of the Bible. So if you've got old school Bible, just flip all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, or type it in. Genesis 3, verse 1. This is where we first get a picture of Satan. Genesis 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, so it's a snake. It's crafty. It's clever. It's cunning. In other words, it's got a plan. But it's a beast. But more than anything, the serpent, did you notice, is a questioner. Not someone who asks questions, not curious, that's different. This is a questioner. The first thing that Satan does is ask Eve a question that subverts the Word of God. Notice he asks Eve, did God really say that? Now we know, if we were to just look at chapter 2, that's precisely what God said. And Eve knows what God said. He is questioning not just a side issue, but the very core reality of the landscape and environment in which she Has been created to live and dwell for her good. Not just what God said, but that God would say anything but what is true. C.S. Lewis says that we should never question in the dark what was true in the light, and that's exactly what Satan is doing. Satan is casting doubt about what is true. He's casting doubt about what Eve knows to be true, about what you and I know to be true. That's the work of Satan. In hard times, he casts doubt, where previously we had no doubt. Have you ever experienced there are things about God of things about his word, like you never question, and then something goes down and you're like, is he really loving? Is he really kind? Does he really take care of me? Does he really know my needs? Does he really exist? All of these fundamental things. We thought maybe as like that preteen go-getter in like Sunday school, we'd never, ever question those things. And then life hits did God really say that? Are you tracking with me? That's how the evil one works. It doesn't mean those questions are unimportant. It just means that's how he works. As a consequence for his questioning of the word of God, God punishes the serpent. Look at verse 15 in Genesis chapter 3. God gives this. After, right before he gives consequence to the man and the woman, he says, I will put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your his heel. But how do we know that Satan? I mean, it was a snake, right? Who could talk? Interesting. It's time for another day or something for another subject for another day. How do we know that that snake is the same being as Lucifer's or rather Isaiah's Lucifer and the gospels Beelzebub and Paul's evil prince? Well, again, systematic theology. When we take a step back and look at the whole, we have the privilege of reading Genesis, the beginning in light of Revelation, the end at the same time. And when we arrive at the book of Revelation, the writer John makes an unmistakable connection. So if you're at the beginning of the Bible, let's go to the end, Revelation chapter 12. All the way, before you get to the maps and the scales and the definitions of words, Revelation chapter 12. It's a big day, we're talking about Satan, getting into Revelation. Hope you had two, two cups of coffee this morning. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. John writes, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. You see, the ancient serpent. It's called devil. It's called Satan. So, the snake is the dragon, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the world. All of those same beings, that the scriptures are testifying about. Or as Jesus famously described in John chapter eight, when he, that Satan lies, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar and the father of lies. So since the beginning and until the end, Satan is a liar. Or as Eugene Peterson, the pastor, late pastor said, that lying is Satan's native tongue. This is just how he talks. John also makes a connection with Satan's origin story. Did you notice he was thrown down to earth with his angels? This is a reference back to Isaiah's Lucifer. When we get to Isaiah chapter 14, we get a picture of how at the very beginning, Satan is this angel, this archangel that ultimately desires to be God, and God, in protection of his glory and in response to his love, cast down Lucifer, or the day star, and relegates him to earth. Again, in the foreground is actually the king of Babylon, but constantly throughout Uh, Old Testament prophecy. There is what's called double fulfillment, something that's happening in the present day and something that is more ultimate. And so we see in Isaiah chapter 14, for instance, where Isaiah is talking about the king of Babylon, but he's also talking about the ancient story of Satan being cast down as a corrupt leader, as, as a nefarious foe who is ultimately banished and punished. So Lucifer was set apart in the heavenly courts, but he wanted more. He wanted to be set above the stars of God, Isaiah said. He wanted to ascend above the heights of the clouds. He wanted to be God. And again, Jonathan Edwards explains, Lucifer, being the archangel, one of the highest angels, could not bear it, thought it below him and a great debasing of him. So he conceived rebellion against the Almighty and drew away a vast company of heavenly hosts with him. That's Satan's story. As a result, Genesis, Isaiah, Revelation all tell us that God threw Satan down to earth with his minions. That's his story. The serpent is the dragon. The dragon is the father of lies. The father of lies is a cast-down angel. That's his story. But now I ask, what's his plan? What's he up to? Now again, I cannot stress this enough. He hates that we are calling attention to him because this is often not the Satan we think about. That's not a caricature. That's not a Halloween costume, right? But it also isn't a power on par with God. God was like, be gone, and he was gone. All right, are you picking up what the scriptures are throwing down? We often go to these two extremes, and he is neither of those things. He is not a cartoon, and he is not God. This is what Paul was concerned to instruct the Romans readers about, Satan's plan. Now, let's keep in mind There are about a million people that live in Rome at the time of Paul's writing. About 60,000 of that million are Jews. Less than that, much less than that are Christians. That means these young house churches in the first century, many of them divided by ethnicity and racial lines, becoming Christians, learning to face the pressures of a young, growing, vibrant city. They're all new to faith. Many of them are learning to raise a family in a city for the first time. They're away from their home. They have a new religion. They have this pressure from outside of the community. They have a pressure within side of the community. The pressure from outside is much more progressive, saying just adopt this religion along with every other. The pressure from within is much more conservative, saying you need to go a little bit more old school with your thinking about who God is. And this is not unfamiliar to us, isn't it? I think this is a pressure that informs our view of Satan today. Satan today, this is why we dismiss him or fear him. With progressive society, it's becoming much more spiritual, have you noticed this? But much less religious. Much more spiritual, much less religious. Ultimately, this means that we believe in the unseen realms and unseen forces. But when you get too particular about who is in those realms and giving names to people and the players in those realms, that's what seems like nonsense. So, yoga's cool, manifesting is powerful, right? meditating is helpful, but Satan, not a thing, right? You could get away with saying yoga is really helpful. It like helps my soul down with that manifest, speak your truth into reality, right? That's what we're supposed to do. That's all a spiritual vibe. It's good. Helpful has limitations, but also has incredibly helpful ideas to it. But if you say Satan is at work in the world, that's crazy. In other words, that spirituality has a limit where it starts to feel like religion. So we downplay his presence, That's the pressure we face externally. But we also face a pressure from within. You know, this pressure is blaming Satan for every bad thing. And that he is around every corner. And if you sin, the devil's going to get you, right? Maybe you grew up in this context where the devil was constantly being named. He's the reason you have that bad thought. He's the reason that your teacher caught you doing that thing. And that's why you're in trouble. And you need to be very careful because he's around every single corner. And you need to make sure that you keep your stuff together or Satan's going to get you. Believing he is around every corner ready to crush God's people. That gives him too much power. See, it's in this myth, in this pressure, we need to understand not only the story of Satan, but his plan. What is he up to? Paul gives us two directives, and each helps us to understand what Satan's up to. Paul first says, watch out. If you're still in Revelation, go back to Romans. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Look at verse 17. He says, watch out. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. So, Paul wants them, and by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God wants us to watch out for ideas and people that cause division within the church community. He wants us to be careful about believing lies about God, just like Adam and Eve And the doctrine we've been taught from the very beginning of romans up until this point is the doctrine of justification namely that we are saved by grace through faith the entire teaching series has been called justified by love because this is the central theme of romans However, Paul knows those ideas don't float in space, and so he says, watch out for people who carry that idea. Watch out for people who carry an idea that is contrary to a justification by love, by grace, through faith, by the mercy of God, because that's going to cause divisions. So from a wider view of Scripture, we see this is precisely how Satan works all the time. Satan is behind evil power. Satan is behind all division. He's behind this kind of deception. That's his plan. If we could boil down Satan's plan into one short, succinct statement, it's division through deception. This is his plan. He wanted to divide Adam and Eve. He wanted to divide Adam and Eve from God and from God's goodness, and he desires to separate you from the Lord. He desires to separate us from each other and us from the world. He he said this in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1, he's like be very careful that you don't desert the gospel that we taught you and go for another one as if there is one. In other words, right after Paul leaves Galatia, a bunch of other people go, eh, is that really what God said? Is that really what is true? Is that really what's righteous? In 2 Corinthians, the same thing was happening in Corinth. After Paul helps to start a church there, he's writing to them again, don't forget, stay faithful. Why? Cuz Satan came along and goes, is that really what God said? So when you're having lunch today, And you've heard this gospel of grace by God's grace. Hopefully, this is what you're hearing today. You're going to be having lunch. It's going to be a wonderful Hipparito. And then Satan's going to slither along. He's going to be like, is that what God really said? Or don't you have to figure it out yourself? Are you tracking with me, church? He is always, he's so uncreative. It's the same thing he's been doing for generations. He is creating division through deception by questioning the word of God, particularly the gospel of grace particularly that God loves you, particularly that God has done a work on your behalf by grace through faith to bring you to God. Paul is saying, don't put up with those lies. Don't mess around with them. You hear your spouse believe in that lie? You say, get behind me, Satan, just like Jesus did to Peter. When Peter gets in front of him in the cross, nope, we're not having that in my house. Your group member starts participating in shame right? Starts participating in this kind of like works-based religiosity. Like, nope, that's not us. That's not team Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. That's how he works. He slithers in. Is that really what God said? Do you see how much we need each other? See how much we need each other? This is why he wants to separate us. Let's keep talking about it. Satan's plan, division through deception. I want to give us three things that I think he's doing here at church in the square that we have to be really, really careful about. I think he continues the same plan. It's uncreative, but it looks different. It's uncreated, but it looks different. A few ways. I think three things that Satan is communicating to church in the square that's sort of infiltrating our own spiritual imaginations that we need to be so careful in our own hearts, but in the hearts of our brothers and sisters as we carry one another's burden in this, that it doesn't divide us. The first lie divides us from God. Satan is telling us that God sees us through our sin or that he doesn't see our sin at all. This is a constant thing that we battle in discipleship, in counseling, in our groups, and in our church gatherings in general. In other words, the lie is that sin defines my relationship with God and not Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That therefore, then, my relationship with God is contingent upon how much or how little I've sinned in a given week. Don't you feel like you go on spiritual roller coasters every now and then about whether or not you're accepted or loved by God? That's Satan's work, right? He wants you to believe that in any given week, you could be close or you could be far from him. It just depends on how much you've sinned. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That sin separates, or that, that lie separates. And so some of us are really casual with sin perhaps, though. We go, well, maybe God doesn't care at all. He he loves me so much he doesn't see my sin at all. That's not true either. He sees your sin, but he does not define you by your sin. He sees your sin, but he doesn't see you through your sin. He deals with our sin, but he does not use that as the central defining reality of our relationship with him. In fact, because he loves us so much, he wants us to walk in holiness and walk away from sin. Because he sees us as daughters and sons, he wants us to deal with that. See, we're divided from him because we don't see ourselves as sons and daughters, but rather as sinners. And that's not how your father sees you. In other words, I think it's the same lie that they were battling with in Rome. See, that there were some folks in Rome who believed that you needed Jesus, but you also needed to be circumcised. In other words, what? Jesus isn't enough. And then others from outside of the church were saying, you need Jesus plus all of the gods of the Greek and Roman Empire. You need all those gods too. In other words, what? Jesus isn't enough. Church, the same lie you and I believe today is that Jesus is not enough. He also needs your performance. He also needs you to be the perfect mother. He also needs you to not get angry at your children. He also needs you to kill it at work so you're a good witness to others, right? In other words, it's Jesus plus something, and Jesus plus anything ruins everything because Jesus is enough. So that's one lie we believe. The second lie we believe divides us from each other. Satan is telling us that love isn't costly. In other words, we think our groups, our friendships, our church is held together by ignoring challenging words and pursuing holiness together, I don't want to say that thing about her because it's going to make her upset and then we won't be friends even though I know it's true and will help her or will help him. And so we think that love is moving back away from what is true because it's uncomfortable, because it's hard. In fact, we believe in order to stay united and to show love to each other, the lie we believe is we better not speak the truth to them. We better not tell them what is really going on or what we see in their life or what we long for in their life. In other words, Jesus isn't enough. Jesus isn't enough for their life. They also need me to sort of mitigate the damage around them. That's exhausting, by the way. It's exhausting. That's so tiring to try to protect people from the truth, especially in a community where God is establishing us on what? Truth. Right? Truth is actually good for God's people. The most loving thing you can possibly do is speak the truth to someone in love. Right? Jesus even puts it this way when he says, Deal with the, plan- the, the speck in someone else's eye when, after you've dealt with the plank in yours, he doesn't say, Don't deal with that speck. He says, Just do it with integrity. Do it with integrity. If you see a speck in my eye, please tell me. I need it out because I cannot do the work that God's called me to do or become the person God's called me to be without you saying, Yo, ton of hypocrisy in your life, Jason. We need to deal with that. We got to do that together. But the lie that Satan wants us to believe is the best way to love people is to keep secrets from them, keep the truth from them. And Jesus isn't enough. A third lie divides us from our neighbors. Satan has convinced us that truth isn't gracious, that love doesn't actually bring change. In other words, I think that we can have a couple of responses to our neighbors. We can believe the lie that sin that we see in the lives of our neighbors or foolishness or brokenness, that it doesn't harm and actually hurt them. And so we don't try to walk with them in love or in virtue, we just try to, like, not hurt their feelings just like maybe we do on the inside or we believe that showing up to care for our neighbors won't bring a lasting change or that someone else is going to do it and so it's not going to be me and so when we see our our neighbors in need we don't show up and respond we don't love we believe that what we are called to do is not going to actually affect in their life anyway or they won't receive from us anyway and so we're just going to back off and like just hope for the best for them what difference is that from anyone? What difference is that from a Disney ethic of thinking happy thoughts and hoping everything just sort of works out? It's not. You and I have been given this gospel mandate to show love and speak truth in a secular age. Why? Because real love incarnates. It shows up. And the incarnation is the, the, the tip, the, the picture, the power of love and truth coming together in real space, and real time and changing everything. And you and I are called to do the same. Sometimes you need to talk to your neighbor. Sometimes you need to shut up and just bring him a meal. And you need the Holy Spirit and you need wisdom to know what to do both, but it's one or the other. (laughs) It's not to create distance and separation from them because they live in a way that makes you uncomfortable or they live in a particular way or say certain things that you disagree with. So what? Get over it. Go love them. That's the lie we believe too, that Jesus isn't enough for our neighbor's. For our family. You're about to spend some time with some family and you're like, Jesus is not enough for mom and dad because they are going to while out again and they're never going to get it. Do you see this? In each of these cases, what's happening? Division. We think division is the thing that's going to create peace. Separation from God so we don't feel shame. Separation from each other so we don't feel truth. Separation from our neighbors so that they don't get uncomfortable. How can we discern all of this? Well, Paul says we can tell through smooth talk and flattery. In other words, what I want to suggest to you is that Satan's lies always go down easy. They always go down easy. It feels good to believe that God doesn't see my sin, and it even feels like I can control it if I believe that my life, my relationship with God is predicated upon my sin. It makes sense. All I need is the right, the right scales and weight to figure out where I stand with him. It feels good to love without cost. It feels good to speak the truth right up into the point of my comfort zone. It feels good to keep my distance from pain or dysfunction or brokenness that my neighbor might be experiencing. It feels good. It goes down easy. We should be very careful when something goes down easy. His lies always go down easy. This is why he says, Watch out. It's a distortion. It sounds right, it sounds nice. It sounds good, but it's not the gospel. That's Satan's plan, because believing that Jesus is enough, or isn't enough, rather, is what causes separation from God, from each other, and from our neighbors. And so Paul gives us this second instruction. Look at it in verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent of what is evil, Wisdom throughout the Scripture is about understanding some truth that leads to righteous living. When we pay attention, when we watch out for Satan's plan, when we begin, when we learn, when we mature in understanding this, we can do the good that God is calling us to do and refrain from believing his lies. When he slithers along and says, is that what God really said? We can say, yes, he did. I just read it in chapter 2, right? That's wisdom. Is that what God really said? I don't know, but I'm going to bring this to my group and I'm going to ask for their counsel and their wisdom. Is that what God really said? I don't know, but I'm going to go to his word because you don't tell me what is true. You don't tell me what to do. God does. He brings me to God. He brings me to my brothers and sisters. He brings me to the mission and vision that he has for me. See, wisdom, in this case, I think begins by naming Satan, naming his story and his plan so that we can do what? Paul says walk in obedience. So the serpent is the dragon, the dragon is the father of lies, and the father of lies is a cast down angel, and he's all about division through deception. Now, knowing the story and his plan, I think this can cause some fear. We go, okay, this is a lot to take in. (laughs) This is a lot for us to take in as a community. How can we make sure that we're constantly on alert to this threat? That certainly may have been the response of Paul's first readers, so we're perhaps in good company. But Paul gives us the full story and the result of this plan. He tells us about Satan's demise. Look at verse 20 in Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The hope is not that we remember this. The hope is not that we do it right every single time. The hope is not that we muster up the right courage, right? This is all simply proliferating that lie that it depends on us. What Paul points us to is the one who is with us. Now, this might seem strange at first. When I first read it, it seemed strange. We might expect him to say, Yahweh Sabaoth," something like this, like the God of the armies will soon crush Satan. That would have been epic. We'd make t-shirts about that, right? That makes sense. But the vision and this picture from the Old Testament that he hearkens, Paul says, who? It's the God of peace. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> that the God of peace will crush? Right, the God of peace will crush Satan is, has a little bit of this, like, logical dissonance to it. Of course, the God of the armies could do it, but can the God of peace crush Satan? Why is this the aspect of who God is, of his character, of his nature, that Paul brings up that will ultimately lead to the demise of Satan. Well, let's think again about his story and his plan. Satan's story is one of chaos and violence. He sought to upend and violate God's glory by deciding or trying to be on par with God. Satan's plan is to divide through deception. He seeks to separate us from God, from each other, and from our neighbors. Therefore, it's peace That brings order where there was chaos, and peace that brings communion where there was division. And the Father will need nothing but His Son to accomplish all of this. Why? Because Jesus is enough. What Satan divides, Jesus makes whole. What Satan separates, Jesus holds together. That's shalom. That's peace. That's wholeness. From the moment the serpent slithers his way toward our first mother, Eve, God has promised to crush Satan by his peace. Remember speaking to the serpent. Right after the deception, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is that promised offspring. Theologians called us the Proto-Evangelion. That's the first gospel. The first gospel, the first good news announcement. When Satan's plan caused enmity, God promised his plan would bring peace. Or we might say God's truth will overwhelm every single lie that Satan has ever told. So while we should not dismiss him, we should neither fear him because he is a defeated foe. God's truth has been announced in the face of every single lie and that gives us hope. Church, if you need hope in the middle of the dissonance of your soul today, of what Satan is stirring up, of the chaos he is creating, of the death that is creeping in, of the darkness that is in there, you need to hear the truth today that Jesus Christ is enough. He is enough. Also gives us further instruction about how it is to live wise. Remember Paul's second exhortation. Being wise means daily identifying when that question is coming up. Did God really say that? Did God, and this is hard, this takes time to know when that question starts stirring in your soul. Being wise means daily living in peace, trusting the truth and reminding one another of this truth. See, Satan says that Jesus is not enough to keep you with God. But the truth is, is that Jesus has made peace with you and God. And what Jesus has accomplished can never be undone. Please hear this, my sisters and my brothers. What Jesus has accomplished can never be undone. Satan is not a threat to peace. He is merely a questioner of it. He can't undo it. How do we know this? Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified in the past tense. Since we have been justified by faith, therefore what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, Jesus is enough to keep us with God no matter how much you've sinned this week. No matter how much you've sinned this week or in what ways you have sinned this week. That's Satan's demise. Satan's demise is that Jesus is our peace. Satan says Jesus is not enough to keep us with each other, but Jesus has given us peace that we share, that binds us together and makes us one. That's Romans chapter 14, verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man, so then let us pursue for what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. See, peace is not just something between you and God, peace is something you have with your brothers and sisters. Did you know that? That's the reality at Church in the Square. That's the reality of the universal church of all times, all peoples, and all places. You have peace with other people. That doesn't mean it always feels great to navigate that. It means that's what is truest about you. Ephesians chapter 2 says he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility that was between us and one another. Jesus is enough to keep us together no matter the cost. That's Satan's demise because Jesus is our peace. Satan says that Jesus is not enough to keep our friends, our neighbors, and our loved ones. But the truth is that Jesus has inaugurated a kingdom. See, Jesus has made peace between you and God. Jesus has made peace between us, and he's also inaugurated a kingdom of peace that is laying hold to this world. That is Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, thanks be to God, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus works through words and works of peace to bring about his good, pleasing, and perfect kingdom. That's Satan's demise. Satan is trying to build a kingdom of chaos and deception, and Jesus has already inaugurated a kingdom of peace. He's way behind. Satan is way behind. That's Satan's demise. Jesus is our peace. So Jesus has pursued, or rather secured, peace by bearing the wrath of Satan's sin and death on the cross. That's Romans chapter 3. Namely, for a moment on the cross, how does he do this? Because for a moment on the cross, after an eternity with His heavenly Father, what does Jesus experience on the cross? Separation. See, what the evil one is constantly trying to do is to say that the separation that the Son felt on the cross has no bearing on your life. But what the scriptures teach us is that because the Son was separated from the Father, you never have to be. Because the the, the Son endured the fullness of separation, of deception, of division, because he endured the fullness of death. Peter tells us he even went to the far reaches of the dark regions of the realm of Satan, and he preached peace to them. In other words, he told them the end of the story. 1 Peter chapter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh here, this church, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He descended to hell and announced that Satan's sin and death were dead and that peace has won. Through his purchase of peace, our precious Lord, then what does he do? He brings us to God. He brings us to each other. He brings us in this world to the least and the last and the lost to make peace. See, the serpent is the dragon. The dragon is the father of lies. The father of lies is a cast-down angel, and he's all about division through deception. But Jesus has brought peace where there was division. Jesus has spoken truth back to every deception. Jesus has cast down the fallen angel himself, Jesus has vanquished the dragon, Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent, and soon the fullness of Christ's peace will be all that we know. I want you to anticipate a day when no one will ever ask again, is that what God really said? In the age to come, no one will ever ask that. Why? Because the Word of God in the flesh will be right there staring us face to face. That is our peace. That is our hope. May we walk in that together. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the ways that we unwisely dismiss Satan and unwisely fear him. Help us to see him rightly as a foe, but a defeated one. All he's doing now is scratching and clawing because he knows his days are numbered. We don't want to take that lightly, but we also do not want that to rule our hearts because you, the God of peace, rules our hearts. I pray for my friends who believe even right now that your love for them is predicated upon their own righteousness and not the righteousness that has purchased them peace. I want to pray for relationships in our church where there is tension and chaos. Would you help them to see that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down and they can have peace? I pray for our relationships with our friends, our neighbors, with those who call Logan Square, Avondale, Hermosa, Chicago home. Would you help us to be a people of peace, of shalom, of wholeness to them? so that Satan would have no foothold, so that Satan would be seen as he is, a deceiver, a liar, and a defeated foe of whom Jesus rules and reigns and one day will fully extinguish for your glory. We long for that day in Jesus' name.